Hello and welcome to The Discourse, a short-form, one-on-one interview podcast with filmmakers, actors, other film industry folks, brought to you by The Playlist and hosted by myself, Mike D'Angelo. My guest today is producer-director Benjamin Karen, who is out promoting his film from A24 and Apple TV+. Plus. It's called Sharper. The film takes place in New York City and weaves together multiple kind of separate con man stories that intersect into one larger intertwined story and stars Julianne Moore and Sebastian Stan and John Lithgow and Justice Smith and Brianna Middleton. We used to get a ton of con man movies in the 90s and early 2000s, and those sort of fizzled out. But this reminds me a lot of those where it's playing with time and perception in order to tell a compelling kind of con and revenge story about greed. Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Sebastian Stan, yet again, is fascinating. Julianne Moore, John Lithgow, they're always good. Justice Smith and Brianna Middleton are great newcomers. Uh, I know Justice Smith has been in a few other things, and Brianna has as well, but they, relative to you know Julianne Moore, John Lithgow, and Sebastian Stan, they're, they're slightly newcomers, but they do great work here. It's currently playing in select theaters across the country and premieres on Apple TV Plus on Friday, February 17th. Uh, my conversation with Benjamin Karen touches on how he he got his start as a director, con man movies he kept in mind while he was making Sharper, uh, the Julianne Moore gun control kind of story that came out of this, his time producing and directing The Crown. He also touches on his time with Andor. Uh, he directed about three episodes of Andor, which if you listen to the Playlist Podcast Network regularly, you know that we absolutely love Andor. So I had to talk to him about that. If you want to hear more of our Andor coverage in general, feel free to check out our Andor-specific podcast called The Rogue Ones, where uh, Rodrigo Perez, editor-in-chief of The Playlist, and myself, we talk to Diego Luna and Tony Gilroy and Fiona Shaw and so many people involved with the series. But before I shoot you over to our interview, I've got to tell you that The Discourse is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes The Playlist Podcast, Bingeworthy, Be Real, Deep Focus, The Fourth Wall, The Rogue Ones, Yellowstoners, and more, and can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite shows. Be sure to subscribe and drop us a comment or rating, as we do very much appreciate it. All right, here's my conversation with the wonderful, the kind, the very talented Benjamin Karen. Mr. Karen, I should say, thank you for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Hi, thank you. Wow. Yeah, so I guess let's start out. Congratulations on Sharper. Congratulations on Andor. It's a hell of a run you're on here beyond those even, so congrats. Thank you very much. So before we jump into Sharper, I just want to ask you right up front, what made you want to become a director and how realistic was that where you were growing up? It wasn't at all. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, I'd love to say that I was, you know, uh, eight years old and I like someone put this camera in my hand and I looked through the lens. And I was like, I want to be a film director, but it really, that didn't happen. I mean, um, my sister and I, we grew up in a pub in the West Midlands. We were, uh, you know, pub kids. Um, she was a co-producer on the movie. We, we loved films. Uh, we loved television. It was just, it was, it was on, it was like another member of our family that was on all the time. It was like a sort of, um, uh so i guess we were kind of surrounded by movies and television uh our entire upbringing but yeah i just it, you know the idea of being a film director just wasn't something that you thought you could do you know hollywood seemed a, a very distant place and that, that sort of just came out through the television box and 
and the sort of film community in the UK was really small. It was like Merchant Ivory, it was um, Working Title, and and it was sort of maybe only a few people that were making those films. So um, uh, it was only really until I I, I got to um, about sort of seventeen or uh, eighteen years old, and um, by that point I you know I had a love of interest in theatre and acting and photography and and you know of course films and television. But I watched a film called Harold and Maud. Oh, wonderful. And, you know, I'd always had an interest in the dramatic. Um, you know, when I was younger, I used to find it sort of mildly amusing, which I don't recommend this to anyone at all. But uh, it was, it's you know, uh, I, I used to sort of throw myself down the stairs and lie at the bottom and, and I'd crack a blood capsule in my mouth just to sort of try and terrify my babysitter who would run out and, and, then, um, and then sort of jump on the phone to find... I'd say you gave nine one one, and then just as she sort of picked it up, I jump up and go. Everything was fine. So I guess when I saw Harold and Maud, I was like, "Oh, okay, wow, that's amazing." There's someone else that sort of had that same experience that I was slightly ashamed of that I'd never really told anyone about. But I was like, "All right, who made this film?" And then I was like, "Okay, there's this guy called Hal Ashby." And then I went and watched uh, Shampoo and what's the one? Everybody, uh, every uh, being there, and I and I and I think that was the first time I thought about what a filmmaker did and what a director did and and then I was like okay so how how do I make a movie and 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 it wasn't like you could just sort of you know it's not you can just walk up to someone and go right because scripts want to make a movie so it just it just took a while you know I, I got a job in television I worked in documentaries I, I worked in commercials and pop promos and I was just doing everything to try and work and learn and constantly going Okay, when can I make a movie? When can I make a movie? And it and it it just it just took a while. And and I got an agent. I was like, okay, can I make a movie? And they're like, no, no, you got to go and make some TV drama. And I was like, okay, I go make some TV drama and I make some TV drama. And then the landscape changed. And and while I was still kind of going, I want to make a movie. I want to make a movie. The ambition and the scale and the actors and the writers that were all traditionally working in in movies were suddenly working in television. So. The thing I wanted the most, I suddenly had, and I and and it was a moment. I was like, I, I'm kind of making films, but on television. So that's what's amazing about films. Every filmmaker has such a kind of mad, eclectic journey to like where they and how they got to the place they do. So you know, yeah, I'm 46 years old, and I'm really proud that I finally made a feature film. <laughs> Yeah, fast forward past Skins and Wallander and The Crown and Sherlock and Andor and all these things that you've done. How did this become the one that was going to be your film? That's a really good question, and I don't—I didn't know this was going to be the one. You know, I think there were there were, there have been other scripts that I thought might have been the one, and um, you know, for for various reasons, they just didn't become that. You know, there might have been a moment before The Crown, which possibly I could have made a feature film, but then that happened, and then that was like six years of my life, and and it was a you know a brilliant six years of my life where I I, I learned so much. And I got to work with Peter Morgan. I got to work with great cast. So, and then there was going to be a feature film. I was uh, after that, um, but then the pandemic happened, and that made that film really impossible at that time. And fortunately, uh, I, I got a call from Zana Wallenberg as a producer on Andor, who, who we'd worked together on Wallander, and she just finished Chernobyl and was producing Andor, and and. She said, "Look, we've got. I'm doing this project. Um, Tony likes your work. Will you talk to him?" So, 
And I was like, yeah, this is exactly, I'd finished the crowd. This is exactly the kind of thing that I want to be doing. I, 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 I've been doing a sort of historical costume drama. What better way to terrify yourself than suddenly to make a sort of action adventure sci-fi program. So it was like a, just a perfect opportunity and the scripts are amazing and, and it was a great team. So, so that happened. And then, and that's now obviously that's only just come out now, but that was like two years ago or two, nearly two and a half years ago that we made that. It's such a long lead time though, the, the, that kind of um, show. And then I was coming to the end of that and my agent sent me sharper um, and I just inhaled it. And I was like, wow, this, I, I didn't guess any of this, you know, it, it's, it surprised me at every twist and reversal. And I just thought, well, look, that's what I love as an audience member going to the cinema and being surprised. And I'm, I was constantly surprised in this. So, and it had Julianne Moore and it had A24 and it had Apple. And I was like, this is like a dream opportunity. So I just had to go and win it. Yeah, that and it's, it's a con man movie, which I'm kind of romantic about con man movies. I grew up watching a lot of them. So it's just like, which are your favorites? I don't know if I have a favorite. Oh, no favorites. No, no, not one. I just mean in which ones, which ones are you talking about? I mean, I'm thinking of like Matchstick Man or, you know, Confidence or all these different like random ones. There's there's some from the 70s. I was curious which ones you kind of had as a, a touchstone. Like, did you want to watch any con, yeah, con man? Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, I know I know that some directors are like, oh, no, I don't want to go and watch other films because I'm worried that they'll, you know, they'll, they'll feel the same. I, I, I just have just have interest in kind of going, OK, well, you know, these what are these filmmakers learn making these movies? What can I sort of, you know, what can I see? What what things work? What doesn't work? So, yeah, I went all the way back to the sting, you know, with. Um, uh, Robert Redford and Paul Newman and then and then you know followed Newman into the color of money and and was like okay that's pretty cool and you know the killing the Kubrick film um House of Games the the David Mamet film um which you know has a certain cadence you know that that that, that the sort of the the way that he wrote and the way that those actors performed that was a sort of was a little bit too um well it's kind of his style but I was like but I you know but but there was something about that film. I was like, oh, that's really intriguing. It's really, I love the characters that he's formed on this page. Um, Thomas Crown Affair, I guess, the sort of the, the 60s version of that. Um, and then maybe more recently, um, Usual Suspects. You know, I, I remember watching Seven and kind of um, uh, enjoying how the claustrophobia of that film was, was, was sort of part of the tone and the mood of the film. And then at the end, you have that big open space. And I was thinking that was something that we could... Yeah. Oh, whoa! He's wearing a seven T-shirt. I mean, okay. So there you go. So, Random so coincidence. I have that film to thank because the end of the 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 last and and I'm not trying to give anything away, but the final act um, took place in the was originally taking place in the warehouse. I'm like, oh man, this is you know, it's just um, and I did listen. The writers, I think they knew it was going to be changed. It was sort of a placeholder, but it's like, oh yeah, you know, we'll leave that to you to work out. And it was like. It was really hard. Like every location we thought of, okay, we'll put it on the top of a car park. And I was like, oh, no, we can't do that. We'll put it in a basement. We came to us sort of one moment, one day, I was talking to Charlotte, the cinematographer, uh, Charlotte Bruce Christensen. And she was like, well, maybe, um, maybe it's the character of the location that's getting in the way. And maybe we need to sort of like free ourselves of that. And, and I was like, well, and we talked about Seven. And we talked about how at the end of that movie, there's sort of they go out to the desert and they're like in you know there's there's nowhere for those characters to hide 
And in a sense, the, the, the location isn't a character anymore. And in a film like Sharper, where the location of New York was absolutely a kind of important character in the movie, it made sense at the end when we get to that violet to just get rid of that. So that's why we go to that open space. And that's why, you know, those characters have got nowhere to hide. And without spoiling anything too much, I mean, there's been a little bit of a hubbub made of it just because Julianne Moore is a, a gun advocate and it's the first time she's used a gun in 15 years on screen. Was that, were there conversations to get that scene to the point where she was comfortable or was that not even really a conversation where it was just like, yeah, this, this makes sense. We're just going to do this. I mean, look, uh, I I don't want to comment too much on 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 that in terms of um, you know Julia Moore is and and I and I've seen online she's a brilliant advocate for for anti guns in America and obviously we, you know I live in London we don't have guns in London it's a very different story and yeah we have films over here that um, show people with guns and and you know people don't go around and shooting each other so um, but I think she said everything that needs to be said about that um, you know. Yes, we had conversations about it. We actually did try and come up with another ending that didn't involve a gun because because and I, I, I listened to her. She was like, I, I would love for this movie not to have a gun. And I, we like we came up with something and it, it just didn't work. We tried three, four different ideas. I think we spent actually I think like weeks trying to come up with other ideas, but we kind of pivoted back to where we'd started. But we kind of came to the conclusion that even the way that it is used in the film is not celebrated. It's actually, um, you know, shown what can happen when a gun is used. And so I think, you know, I'm listen, I, I'm not a big fan of guns in movies. So, so, yeah, it was a difficult conversation. And I'm glad that we had that and we had to talk about it. But, you know, we are, we are. I love a lot of your actors here. You've got a hell of a cast. But... John Lithgow is, is someone I hold very close and I always just, you know, I'm tempted to ask, what's he like to work with as a, as a director? Do you have any favorite John Lithgow moments just working with him at all? I love John and he's a he's a friend. I can count him as a friend now. We've stayed in touch since filming in The Crown. I I remember it was, a, it was the first season and we, or I was directing um, one of his episodes called Assassins, which I'm really proud of and... and uh, uh, sort of one of the few episodes, one of the sort of many episodes of Direct Around, but the um, and it's and, and it's basically about him. He's 80, he's playing Churchill. He's eighty years old. The Parliament have have decided to celebrate his birthday by commissioning a portrait, and we meet Graham Sutherland, who comes in, and we, and it's this amazing, beautiful relationship between the sort of artist and the sitter. Um, we discover over a process, over 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 time that. They have both shared a loss and they find a connection with each other. It was really early on. And I think, you know, John didn't know me at that time. And I, and I think actually he thought um, it was going to be someone else directing that. He thought it was either going to be Stephen Doldry or it was going to be Stephen Frears. And then suddenly there's this there's this guy that turns up and he's like, who's Ben Cannon? And like, oh, no, no, he's, you know, um, you're going to love him. Um, he's great. He, you know, he's he's. He's worked with Ken on on Wallander, and he's like, okay. So he was like a little bit apprehensive at first. Anyway, we um, the first bit we uh, we had a rehearsal um, plan. I always like to rehearse with actors; it's a really part of really important part of my process. And um, we were at Left Bank. We were in a like just an office, like a, just a boring office. And um, Sutherland was played by Stephen Delane, another brilliant, brilliant actor. And 
John had said to me, oh, I love Stephen. I absolutely love him. He's the, you know, he's the most brilliant, brilliant actor. I'm, I'm really excited to work with him. Now, this was quite cheeky, but I, um, when I spoke to Stephen on the phone before he arrived, I was, um, as I looked, you know, John's a big fan of yours, but, um, you know, look, when we start this, when we start these um, scenes, the two of you are, are kind of, is a bit of a cat and mouse game. You're not, you know, they're not, you're not really sure of each other. So I, I think, you know, you should just think about that when you come into this rehearsals that, you know, maybe don't be so friendly to begin with. So we just left it at that. And uh, John was there and we were waiting and Stephen sort of came in. He came in and John was like, oh, Stephen, so lovely to meet you. You know, I've, I've seen you in this and this. It's brilliant, really, really. And uh, Stephen was like, thanks. And then just sat down. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, oh, God. That's so awkward. And John was like, oh. And it's like, I was crushing. I mean, I felt crushed. It was so awkward. And like, you know, and John is genuinely like the loveliest man in the world. And like, he has he's such a just hu lovely human being. And everyone loves him. Everyone knows him. He's always the first back behind stage to see actors. And I could just see him as really unused to this because like, how... How could someone sort of be so cold? Anyway, we then just rehearsed the scene and it was brilliant, of course, because sort of John had been wrong footed and and we and Stephen, God bless him, we carried all that through into filming. And then as we were kind of, you know, working our through through the scenes, he began to soften. And by the end, of course, they were like the best of friends. And like, you know, Stephen was inviting John down to like his house in France and stuff like that. So you know, that, that I'm, you know, that's just one of those things that you can play games, you know, and then the, that's probably a long enough story, isn't it? Is that enough? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, God. Well, I do want to, I do want to ask about Andor before I get uh, wrapped here, because I just love that show so much. Uh, and I love Tony Gilroy so much. And you got to direct three episodes. You got to land the plane, basically, or the Starfighter, I guess, as it will. But the, the finale is just, I got to you know, do a space battle. I mean, exactly. like a space battle with Luther and, um, I mean, it's so mad though, because you're like, okay, um, how do you even begin to film a space battle? But, you know, the, of course there's so much CGI and, uh, um, you know, the, the, uh, VFX team, uh, Moen and the rest of them and the rest of the team were just extraordinary. So, you know, so much of that, um, space battle had been sort of pre-vised and we'd sort of got it back in the edits with my, you know, my long-term collaborator, yeah, Mars, and we were sort of playing around. So there's all a bit of backwards and forwards, but then... As a director, you're really, you know, apart from kind of making sure that the drama is working in the previous, you know, as a director, all you're really filming is, you know, the actors in the space cockpits. And like, I, I mean, this is so embarrassing, but, you know, I am the guy that's basically sitting at Stellan's feet with like a, a, a switchboard, right? And on that switchboard, I've basically got lasers, I've got explosions and I've got, you know, sort of other bits of light. And I basically, and I'm just, and I'm sort of shouting to him, lasers, and then hitting the button like that. And he's like moving that way. And I'm like, explosions. And it was like sort of playing a video game. And and I, and I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I used to be, I don't have kids now, I don't anymore, but I used to be a gamer. So it was like playing a real life game of Star Wars where I had like Stellan Skarsgård sort of rocking around with sort of lasers and explosions and everything going off. It was like a childhood dream come true. So, you know, that's the mad, that's the mad part of um, some of the things you have to do with Star Wars. And then the end, the, fi the finale, I, I sort of pitched, I pitched Tony the, the Battle of Algiers. That was it. 
I basically pitched him the Battle of Algiers. I was like, you know, there's something about what you've written in. He was like, that's it. It's like the sort of the visceral um, nature of that movie was something that I just thought would naturally fit to, fit to this sort of finale and this and this sort of uprising between the sort of people of Ferex and and you know the sort of the empire. And so that was the kind of starting point for that ending. And and uh, and then you know then it was just a process of just you know breaking everything down to kind of the individual beats of the of the story but you know it was ama- it was amazing i had the best time i loved it i loved i loved working with diego i loved working with stellan and and denise who plays dedra i mean she that she that was a lot of fun i remember um she turned up on the first day and uh and she has this monologue a, a really long monologue and it's it's really hard as an actor so if you come from sort of more um, naturalistic films to come aboard and remember stuff like that. And I remember uh, we were sort of on set and it just just disappeared. And she was like, it was like it sort of vanished in front of her eyes. <laughs> it was like, and, and, you know, and these are places that don't exist in the real world. And if you, if you aren't familiar with them, they're really hard to kind of just get into your memory bags. So we're like, I said, okay, don't worry, Denise. We'll come back and we'll do, you know, we'll do it another time. And I was like, look, I remember on Sherlock that, um, you know, he's got these big monologues that Stephen Moffat writes and, and sometimes pace is your friend. You know, you've got to just drive through these monologues. And uh, and she phoned, she phoned her friend um, Jodie Whittaker who was doing uh, Doctor Who and she was like, yeah, yeah, you just got to, you got to hit it hard. And, and she sort of came back in the next day and it was like, <laughs> Outstanding. Well, they're giving me the hook nine times over here, but I really appreciate your time. Sharper's great. Hit select theaters on February 10th and streaming on Apple TV Plus on the 17th. Benjamin, thank you again. 